Good morning. My name is Jimmy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central, and it is my honor to bring you God's word today. The word of God today comes from the book of Job, chapter 1, verses 6 to 12, and then verses 20 to 22. This is the reading of God's word. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, All that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Amen. As we continue in our series on spiritual warfare, it's interesting that most people and cultures around the world seem to be more afraid of Satan and demons than they are of God. The fact is that Satan and demons are actually creations, angels who had fallen. And that the Bible speaks of a God who not only created them, but has a sure day of judgment awaiting for them. And here in the book of Job, it's one of the few places where Satan is speaking and acting. And so for the sake of our desire to better understand the topic of spiritual warfare, I want us to see that though Satan may seem powerful, he's not supremely powerful. In fact, only God alone is supremely powerful. In fact, if we think about it soberly, out of reverence or fear, that should only be directed toward a sovereign God and not toward one of his creatures. In fact, the book of Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, not the fear of demons or Satan. But as we think about this, the topic I want us to address and better understand is the sovereignty of God in the midst of a fallen and evil world. To better define the sovereignty of God, I want to quote Dr. John Frame, a doctor uh, and a professor of seminary. And in his book, The Doctrine of God, he writes, The sovereignty of God is the same as the lordship of God. For God is the sovereign over all creation. The major components of God's lordship are his control, authority, and covenantal presence. Dr. Frame continues to speak not only about these qualities of God, but he goes on to say, his sovereign control is not impersonal or mechanical, but is the loving and gracious oversight of the king of creation and redemption. 
So when we think of God, we want to remember that all authority and power, along with all love and grace, come together as God works and does and performs all the things of his will and his good plan. In fact, Dr. Frame goes on to say that it is the godness of God. And as we address spiritual warfare and the evil that we battle against, I want us to remember that God is sovereign. He's in control. And that he's not worried or scared or caught off guard. He understands and he knows. And so his control means that everything happens according to his plan and intention. His authority means that his commands ought to be obeyed by all of his creation. And his presence means that we encounter God's control and authority in all our experience so that we cannot escape his justice or from his love. So in light of this significant doctrine, I want to share two important thoughts about God's sovereignty that will help us to stand firm in turbulent times of sorrow, suffering, and even spiritual warfare. The first thought that I want to share from our passage and the story of Job is that God's sovereignty gives us peace in knowing that God works all things for the good, both for his glory and our benefit. You know, when we're suffering or going through hurting moments, our main focus is to stop the pain, period. It's why when we get a headache, we pop an aspirin or an Advil or a Tylenol. However, in moments of sobriety, we need to understand that God is in control and that he's not in a hurry. He's not worried. He's, his goals have not changed. In fact, God continues to work out his plan even in the midst of times that feels so unrestful for us. To better understand what is the overarching work of God and our place in it, I want to remind us of what the Westminster Catechism says as we remember the question and then the answer. In the very first question, the question asks, what is the chief end of man? The answer to that is that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Pastor John Piper summarizes this thought in his own way by saying, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And I love that because at the end of the day, God is working all things for his glory as well as for our ultimate joy and pleasure. And throughout the history of the Old and New Testament, God is constantly about the honor of his holy name and how he is to be praised always, both now and forever. And this is the most important truth that as Christians, the very first question, the very first summary of the catechism takes us to understand that which matters most to God and should matter most to us. However, Satan's goal is opposed to this. His goal is to turn us away from God and to have people not only ignore God, but also to ultimately curse God to his face. In chapter 1 of Job, when Satan was presented with Job as a blameless and upright man who feared God and turned away from evil, 
Satan accused Job's faithfulness as shallow and conditional. That he was only this way because God had hedged around him his protection and gave him his blessings. But Satan said, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And so God permitted Satan to test Job. And Satan's attack used several different means to try to bring Job to a place of such overwhelming sorrow that he thought he would curse God. Satan used people. He used natural catastrophes as well as even physical illness. In chapter 1, verses 13 to 19, which we didn't read, I want to summarize what happens to Job as Satan is released to go and attack Job. The first situation happens as a group of people called the Sabaeans took his oxen and his donkey. As they were plowing, they were struck down, and the servants were all killed by the sword. Only one remained to report to Job what had happened. The second event that happened is that fire fell from heaven, and interpreters possibly believed that this could have been uh, perhaps lightning, but it had to be something significant to kill all 7,000 of his sheep and burned up all the sheep as well as killing all the servants. The third thing that happened to Job was that the group of people called the Chaldeans or the Babylonians formed three different groups and raided the camels and killed the servants of Job. And if that wasn't enough for all his possessions to have been robbed or possibly all killed, he had seven sons and three daughters, and all of them were eating and drinking at their oldest brother's house when a great wind, possibly some type of a hurricane, came and the house crumbled down on his children and they all died. All this, according to the story of Job, seemed to happen one after the other, one catastrophe after another. Imagine losing everything you own, including all the children you have, all at once. I know many of us go through hard times in life. And sometimes, like Job, we feel like it's wave after wave of hardship after hardship, struggle after struggle. But here, not only did the first round of attack prove unsuccessful, because Job's response was one of faithfulness. The second was even worse. Job, Job after proclaiming his faithfulness and trust in God, in chapter 2, which we didn't read, Satan then accuses and says, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And so in verse 7 and 8, he goes on to say, so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Job sat in sackcloth and ashes to begin his mourning of all that he had lost, his children and his possessions. And to top it all off, sores broke out, boils broke out all over his body. Satan was allowed by God to bring even physical harm to Job, not to take his life. And all that Satan does 
is always within the boundaries that are set by God and given by God. And I know as we think about that question and that thought of what happened, perhaps some of the questions that comes to your mind as well as, as to mine is why would God allow such things to happen to a blameless and righteous man? This doesn't seem fair. These are very good questions. I was reminded of a story, a testimony given by a missionary by the name of Darlene Rose, who went to become a missionary with her husband before World War II to the islands of New Guinea. As World War II broke out, the missionaries were held in prison camps. And, this, and what happens is, eventually her husband dies. And she suffers in prison, even to the point of being put uh, on death row. And she's able to finally escape and return home. She returns back to serve these people for over 40 years. And as an old woman, she tells a story of all her hardships. And yet everything that she had lost, every pain that she had gone through, and even the, the threat of death, Darlene Rose tells a testimony of God's faithfulness, of his presence, and of his power, not only to be with her and comfort her, but to deliver her. But her story wasn't so much about the, the success of what God did to deliver her from a prison camp, but it was all that journey of learning of who God is and his faithfulness. And I remember her saying, I would never trade places with any of you, for those days were not terrible days. Those were blessed days. You see, God at the end of the day is seeking to bring glory to himself and to teach us to learn to enjoy him. And to do that, we have to be free from all the things that we find our pleasures in. And whether you agree with God or not, one of the most important things that God does in the life of every one of his children is not to make us happy, but to make us holy, to be more Christ-like. And that being one of his main goals, because that's what we take into eternity, is hard to accept. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why so often we as Christians, we struggle with God's will. Because we want to be happy, we want to be comfortable, we want everything to work out the way we want it. But God has a different plan. God has a purpose for which he is allowing us to continue to live to be, to be able to discover and see the beauty of who God is. Many missionaries have often told of how their experience in the hardships in the mission field and yet their fellowship with God turned out to be a tremendous gift and blessings in disguise. And here in the story of Job, though Job suffered great loss, he did not curse God. Instead, he honored God by saying, in chapter 1, verse 21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job recognized who was in authority, who had every right to give and to take away, and he found comfort in that. He rested in that, and he even blessed God in that. And it says, In, this, in all this, Job did not sin. Or charge God with wrong. 
And when Job was struck physically by Satan with boils in chapter 2, what's interesting is that even his wife comes into the picture, and this is what, what it says. It says, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil or bad? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. You know, no matter how much we complain or don't like what happens, we can't choose what happens to us, but we can choose how we respond. This is a lesson that I've learned from many other people, but one person, a lady by the name of Corrie Ten Boom, she was a Dutch Christian who, along with her family, hid Jews during World War II. When their family was betrayed by fellow Dutch citizens, the entire family was imprisoned. And when she escaped, she wrote of her story and her testimony in a book called The Hiding Place. And in it, Corrie Ten Boom writes, It is not my ability, but my response to God's ability that matters. What Corey is saying is, I know that I can't control what happens, but I can control how I respond to the one who does control, who does have authority. You see, the Bible helps us to see in the book of Job that Satan can only do what God allows. And why God allows can still be a struggle in your heart, and that's okay. And what God allows always has a purpose for his glory, and for your benefit. The benefit may not always be how you defined it, but in the end, it becomes a gift, a story of your grace, of how God worked in your life. There's often a good we can't see or understand. And that's why in Romans 8.28, the Apostle Paul reminds us and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things, hard times and good times, for those who are called according to his purpose. And so God's sovereignty gives us peace in knowing that God works all things for the good, both for his glory and for our benefit. The second thing I want us to understand and find comfort in and strengthen is that God's sovereignty has secured for us a hope beyond these momentary afflictions. The fact of the matter is that no one is exempt from suffering. No one is exempt from hardships and loss. And part of that is because we live in a fallen world and there's sin within each of us. Christian or not, we all face the same realities of evil and sin and even death. However, the difference is that as Christians, we have a hope that has been secured for us, purchased for us, and has give, been given to us to rest in and find peace each day. Our comfort is not found in restored circumstances. Our comfort is not found in loved ones who have died that are returned to us, at least not right away. God's promise has never been for brighter days or for easier life. Jesus' promise was not that following him would be rosy-colored days or moments of life. Instead, 
what he described to his disciples when they chose to follow him were days of persecution, hatred from the world, and that this narrow path of following Jesus would be filled with many hardships, even tribulations. But this path led to eternal life. God's promise secured in Christ for us was for a future day in glory. And no matter what Satan may use to turn our attention away from God, what God has secured for us will never be lost, stolen, robbed, or taken back. This is why the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1, verses 21 to 24, he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, which I shall, which Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. You know, sometimes I think I get it backwards. Sometimes I think that What a blessing is, is to live long and prosper on earth, which is better by far. And that perhaps to depart and to be with the Lord is good, but is it the best? During this season of COVID, I've watched funerals online. And this week I will have attended two funerals. When I heard of our dear sister, our dear sister Jessica Moon's passing this a week, week and a half ago, I was shocked in disbelief. I remember that whole day. I, I almost felt dysfunctional. I was in, I was in sorrow and un, in disbelief. And, and the word why was the first thought that came to my mind. Our children's director, Eric Cho, his father also passed away. After battling cancer for years. And as the funerals were held this week, what will govern our thoughts as a church? Where will we allow our thoughts to dwell? Perhaps some of you right now are struggling, struggling during COVID because you miss family and people and and all the things that we used to do in life, but some of you have suffered great loss. Some of you have lost loved ones. Some of you have lost businesses and jobs. Some of you are probably in the midst of maybe even losing your marriage. You feel like your kids are wandering to the edges of of nowhere or evil. And there's so much anxiety and so much worry in your heart. I'm not saying that we ought not to grieve or mourn during the times when we suffer loss. You see, Job had questions. Job mourned his loss and suffering as he sat in sackcloth and ashes. Job fought to justify that he didn't deserve such suffering when three friends came to try to bring him comfort, but instead all they did was argue with him. And in the end, when Job got to commune with God in conversation, Job got no answer, only more questions. Because God is sovereign, I want us to remember 
that God is under no obligation to answer us for anything he does. I know we can wave our fists into the heavens and say, God, why? And have tears flow down our face and we almost demand an answer from God as if God were our servant. One of the hardest things to understand as we think about the sovereignty of God is that he alone is God and we are not. And even though God has no obligation to give us an answer and there's no higher authority, Job was reminded of God's sovereignty and his humanity when God asked him questions. In Job 38, verses 1 and 2, as well as verse 4, he's, the Lord says and speaks, and he says, and it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And when he talks to Job, he says, were you, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Now, as you hear this response of God, you would think maybe this sounds harsh. This man lost everything. He lost his children. He's sitting in, in, in boils from head to toe. And God seems to ask, Job, who are you to talk to me? Who are you to question me? And were you even there when I laid the foundations of the earth? As harsh as that sounds, it's true. He's God. He's God. Have you ever looked into the stars in the heavens and wondered what an amazing mass of just space and stand in awe at all the stars that are so far away and to imagine billions more like that and yet God is even greater than all of that. Sometimes in our pain we forget how big God is and how small we really are. And of course, during this question from God, Job's response was one of humility. In chapter 42, Job answers the Lord and, and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Yeah, Job was humbled before the Almighty. And he never knew why he suffered. He never got an answer from God. And as you reach the end of this book, humanly, it's very frustrating because if the story just ended there, if the Bible ended there, then yes, it would be so difficult. Yet you and I, through the book of Job, we were given privilege to understand that there was actually a conversation in heaven that somehow God had allowed this and somehow God would eventually be glorified by this and even though Job didn't receive an answer to his questions that day only that God is God God would give an answer because the greatest answer that God would give was yet to come in the book of Job he had three friends who tried to bring him comfort. And yet the scriptures speak about a friend who sticks closer to us than a brother. I know when I lost my best friend to death, I felt like God was so far away. 
whatever his presence was, I, I had no clue. And I know that when we go through hardships and suffering, it's almost impossible to feel or sense God's presence. It feels so hard in the midst of the pain. And if you think no one knows how you feel and what you're going through, I want you to know that he knows. You see, the Father knows what it feels like to lose someone you love. And Jesus knows what it feels like to be alone, in pain, and in sorrow. In fact, Jesus experienced the reality of hell on the cross as he took on our sins and he was separated from the Father. The Holy Spirit of God, the scripture says, grieves because he dwells within us. And he knows our very thoughts. He knows our very pain. In fact, the scripture also speaks of him as that comforter, the one who brings us also God's comfort. But he is the person of the Trinity who dwells with us, grieves with us, and yet leads us to Christ until we're finally taken home. Last week, our sister Jean Kang shared a powerful story of grace as she remembered the love and faith of her mother as she went to be with the Lord due to cancer last year. As our sister was sharing her story of grace, whether you experience something like this or not, we all understand how hard that must have been, and yet rejoicing in something greater, a hope that was given to her, that this is not the end, that she will see her mother again, that we will see Jessica again, that Eric Cho will see his father again, that this is not the end, that God has given us and secured us a hope in Christ that will never be taken away. In moments of loss and sorrow, what begins to be so real, perhaps the most significant reality for Christians as we believe in Jesus is that we have Jesus. Corey Timboon writes, You can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. God's sovereignty secures for us something we haven't seen, yet it is something most beautiful at a cost of someone most loving. It's hard to say, Blessed be the name of the Lord in times of sorrow and loss. But to stand firm is to remember that God is sovereign. All the time, over all of his creation, he is good. He's in control. He alone is the supreme authority. And his promise is that he will be our God and we will be his people. I want to conclude by directing you to a final thought about God as well as Job's faith. In James 5.11, it says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, I want you to think about this. The purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful, and Job. 
You know, when I first read the story of Job and thought of God, I did not think of compassionate and merciful. How can these words all come from one verse? Well, if the story ended at the book of Job, it would almost sound like a story of tragedy. Even though Job was restored, doubled his possessions, and restored with another set of sons and daughters. But the real compassion and mercy of God was not that God restored his wealth and his children. You see, there was one who was greater than Job, one who would come later who suffered and was separated from his beloved as he hung on the cross, as he offered up his own life and shed his own blood for the very needed sacrifice for the sins of God's people. God is compassionate and merciful because in his sovereignty, it wasn't us that died, it was Jesus, his only son, that died. One day, we will see that all was not lost, but all was actually gained. One future day in glory, you and I will know that we do have a friend, not like Job's friends, but a friend, a dear friend, who sticks closer to us than any brother, who will never leave you nor forsake you. And the best part of it all is that he has all authority, he's in complete control, and his covenantal promise, his promise to us is his presence that will never leave for now and for eternity. I want to leave you with Job's heart and Job's hope in chapter 19. In the midst of his pain, in the midst of the onslaught of his three friends, telling him to repent for something he didn't know what to repent for, Job says this in 19 verses 25 to 26. He says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. That's powerful. Job stood under the sovereignty of God and withstood the attack of the enemy and brought glory to the name of God and honored him in his words and then in his heart. I want to encourage you, church, to remember that the name of Jesus Christ is not just a name we utter just on Sundays, but every day. And in the midst of our pain and sorrow and loss and days that blur into other days, may your greatest comfort be found in the God who has all authority, who's in control, and whose covenantal presence will bring us comfort even through the darkest days. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to lift up our families at our church that will be grieving for many months, maybe even years. The Moon family, the Cho family, and many others have lost loved ones, parents, friends, siblings, 
Others have lost careers or jobs or even the things that we used to do. It brings us such sorrow and grief. No matter how Satan may attack each of us in our households or in our personal lives, I pray that your sovereignty would be our greatest comfort and that your glory and honor would be our greatest joy. And may the sweet name of Jesus be the very hope that we hold on to that helps us now and leads us into eternity. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.